Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Completely Arbitrary, the podcast about trees and other related topics. I'm just one of your two hosts. My name is Alex Croson, and alongside the incredible, the edible... I didn't know I'm edible. What do I taste like? I'm Casey Clapp. I assume I taste like Casey Clapp. I actually did this bit, this exact same bit last episode, and you said you tasted like a mother's circus animal cookie. Really? Is that what I said? Yes. I mean, I remember that, but I didn't know that you said I was edible. I edited that episode today. Oh, and, I said uh, that. Yeah. Uh-oh. The pink ones, you said. Yeah, it's because they're, you know, obviously. Yeah. Wow, man. Short-term memory. Look at me. I'm not not great, but you can well, also say eggs because that's sort of where that comes from—the incredible edible egg. Oh, that's true. I don't think it tastes like eggs, though. No. However, I do. As I was sitting here, I'm drinking a Superberry Brew Doctor kombucha. Mm-hmm. By the way, Brew Doctor, still waiting for that check. Oh man, we tried to get them as a sponsor, and they said no. <laughs> they didn't, I don't even think they said no. I think they were just like, "We're not going to reply to that." No, they did. They did reply <gasps> they to us. Did? Yeah, they said that they don't do podcast sponsorships at the moment. But wow. They, if that ever changes, they'll reach out. Oh. Of course they will. Anyway. No harm, no foul. We, we love Brew Doctor. It's reasonable. I'm in the mood for macaroni and cheese right now. Wow. That, like, that sounds good. Yeah, the box kind. Like, I don't want anything fancy. I, mm-hmm. just, I just want one from probably Annie's. Okay. Hey, Annie's. They're oh. way too big. Now, Annie's isn't going to do that. No, we can't. We, I, keep, I can't even try to force that. Yeah, let's go with a smaller company like Kraft. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, you know, a mom and pop shop. <laughs> Casey, we have a really cool tree to discuss today, but before that happens... Ooh, do we? We have some something to clear up. I have something to clear up. Oh, yes. All right. Hit us up. What do you got? What's going on? Uh, in our last episode, we had talked about catkins. Sure, I remember this. On the, uh, the, 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 the aspen. That's the right. The quaking aspen. Mm-hmm. And... I said, huh, they kind of look like caterpillars. Ah, And then, of course, my brain clicked, and I thought, huh, I wonder if catkin and caterpillar come from the same root etymologically, right? right?" I see, yeah. So I looked it up. Uh, Here's what I found. Uh, This this is from, like, an etymology dictionary. Okay. So this first one is regarding uh, caterpillar. They hang down. Is that it? It's just strictly looks. Is that what this is going for? I'm trying to preempt it without reading what you're about to say. Well, let me do my thing God. and then we'll talk about it. All right. Larva of a butterfly or moth, mid 15th century caterpillar. Ah, probably that's a fun spelling. Yeah, right. It's C A T Y P uh, Y R P E L. I do for that. I love that. Probably altered by association with Middle English pillar, which means plunderer or pillage, you know. Oh, like would it. Altered, like so, caterpillar is it like it, it plunders something? It's a yeah, yeah. maybe. Okay, sorry, and then keep going. From Old North French, caterpillu. <laughs> Pilus. If there's an e at the end, you pronounce the, the oh, vowel before pi- the thing before it. Pilos. Um, oui. And then, which literally means shaggy cat. <laughs> so now we're on to something. I like where we're going. Okay. We're, we're on to something here because that means shaggy cat. Shaggy cat. Caterpillos. Right. Caterpillos. Means Caterpillos. shaggy cat. Caterpillos. There you go. Your first yeah. one was in a Russian accent. Yeah, it was. <laughs> our, our, you know what? Everything, Russian French. Everything I do the first time is in a Russian accent. Anybody can be from anywhere. Yeah. Go back and listen to episode one of Completely Arbitrary. Whole thing's in Russian. There you go. Uh, compare also French chenille. 
Ah, probably in reference to the woolly bear. You skipped over that shaggy cat. Oh, right, 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 It's a woolly bear. Are you familiar with the woolly bear? No. Oh, my God. It's those little black and orange caterpillars Uh that, um, I think they're actually a moth of some kind, that are really, really fuzzy. Like, they look like you could just pet them. Like, they're little, like, they're adorable. Right. And they actually live in, like, Arctic and live for, like, several years, these individual caterpillars, and they will sit and get completely frozen through, like, ice solid through wait till the season turns no. then they'll pop back to life continue eating and they'll just do that until during they, they get a good enough season that they can pupate and become a uh, an adult you're kidding not kidding they at get all. frozen solid and they saw back alive that's right little Jeez. woolly bears wow <laughs> shaggy cats yeah <laughs> so there's something there but then also um uh catkin literally just comes straight from kitten really that's yes. it so, I don't know if this answers our questions or just presents new ones. Well, it does. Well, I'm so curious. Where so Katkin comes from kitten? Yeah. So what does that mean? Katkin? You mean it's like the kin of a cat? Katkin. I don't. I don't understand. Comes from kitten. Where does it come from? How does that reference to a tree? Uh, well, the catkins look like cattails. Really? Are you I mean, kidding that's, me? That's my assumption. That is, that is, I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. Wow. Okay. What is cattail also a plant? It is true. We yes. should have a we should have a segment where we talk about plants that are named after animals. Psh, sounds good to me. I'll do it. And then um, animals that are named after plants. The dogwood. Yeah. What did we got? The tree uh, tree vole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lives in a tree and it's a vole. There pretty uh, pretty interesting stuff there, Alex. <laughs> Super if I interesting. I say so myself. You can see from the shape of my raised eyebrows, I'm extremely interested. <laughs> they look like two peaks. <laughs> uh, anyway, so yeah, that's what we have. That's what we have here. I'm, uh, so this is. I'm so curious about this though, because if there was a, if it comes, if Kakin just comes straight from kitten, yeah. Why would they call that the tree thing? Because they don't all look like little cattails, and cattails don't even look anything like catkins, because catkins are like the things that hang down yeah. and are like these pendulous fruiting bodies. Those don't look like cattails? I don't think so. Like, they look kind of disjunct. Like, look up a, a birch catkin. It doesn't look anything like it. Uh, you might also look up the, uh, I guess... It depends on what the first catkin was that they're referring to. I'm looking at a birch catkin. 100% looks like a cattail. Oh, get out of town, Alex. You don't even know what a cattail looks like. I've never even seen a cat. All right. Catkin etymology. Is this compelling radio? It better be. Late 16th century from obsolete Dutch katakin kitten. I don't understand it. Yeah, man. I don't get it. I don't like this. I'm upset. Well, anyway. you know, language is often confusing and random. Yeah, I guess that's true. I'm just, um, it's so curious because I guess it is, it's random. But I want to know, I want to know why that became the scientific sexual reproductive thing on plants mm. and how it comes from kitten. It just seems so innocuous. Yeah, well, maybe uh, maybe somebody will write in to us, an etymological person. Uh, please do. In fact, I think what I really want to do now is just call, like, if I see a little kid and I'm going to be like, oh, that's just a cute little spike of unisexual, epitaceous flowers having scaly, usually deciduous bricks. Oh, my God. I think if you said that to my cat, I would <laughs> be like, Casey, I can't have you around my you cat need, anymore. You need to go. <laughs> oh, come on. A unisexual, apetalatalous flower. Apetalous flower, sorry. Very cute name for a cat. Yeah, I'm going to tell that's, that's going to be the full name of my cat. I'm just going to call it Katkin. And yeah. then we're going to be like, what, is, what does Katkin stand for? I'm like, well, it's a long story. <laughs> what does it stand but for? But it, 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 it hangs down usually. It's an acronym. Casey, today we have a pretty cool tree that I, again, don't know much about. This is exciting. It's kind of a trend here. Hey, um, first time for everything. I do know it's genus. <gasps> Tell us. Well, this is an Acer tree. Yes. And, and where does Acer come from, Alex? Did you look into this? Where does the word Acer come from? Yeah. No, I did not look into this. Oh, I learned that it comes from sharp. Okay. Yeah. So Acer, they, they assume uh, it's either lance, or like, you know, the, the leaves are sharply pointed. Uh-huh. Um, that's what uh, some assumptions are. But apparently there's also some etymology that brings it back to like hard or something like that. I think it's like Celtic 
Ock or Os. It's A C. I don't know the pronunciation. Interesting. There's yeah. also a brand of uh, like computer. Um, you know, like true. monitors called Acer. Yeah, I don't know what the I don't know. I think that comes from uh, like building trees, like uh, like the computer trees. Hmm. There's something about that. Well, I was gonna say sharp because it's a sharp image. Oh, nice I clear see. sharp image. Hmm. Looks like someone dove pretty far at the Acer company to find out, you know, yeah. what they're gonna do here. Yeah. Why didn't we spend that much time on our like come up with a really good pun or like some really deep like sixteen different meanings layered deep for our, our show? I feel like we just kind of called it in. Yeah, we 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 phoned it in a bit. We had to be <laughs> home by five o'clock. We That's were like, true. <laughs> I didn't want to ride my bike home in the dark. There is there is nothing. There is no better metaphor for this show than just a its title being just a shit pun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> a really poor pun. Yeah. Everyone's like, well, we know what we're expecting here. And here's a here's a little behind the scenes spoiler for everybody. It was our best option. That was yeah yeah. Imagine <laughs> being on the top of that pile. Good for us. Good for everyone. It's a real king, uh, uh, king fly on top of a big <laughs> pile of shit. Thanks for sticking with us, you guys. Yeah, thanks, everybody. We we love and appreciate you. Anyway, Casey. Anyway. We're talking today about the Japanese maple, maple mm-hmm. Acer Palmatum. Palmatum. Yes. I would pronounce it differently. Palmatum. Yes, it just flows a little easier. It means like the palm of your hand. Well, how about that? Yeah. Of course, it's referring to the uh, uh, the the leaves the of leaves. which everyone is very familiar, or at least should be, kind of superficially with the the classic uh, maple leaf with that those those points that come out all from that central area, palmately yes. lobed, not compound. See, at least I, in this case. I think it's a bit uh, redundant to call the Japanese maple Acer palmatum. Ah, uh, why is that? Because. Uh, aren't most maple leaves palmate? Ah, they in fact are not, well, my friend. Not. There you go. Aren't, aren't enough for it to be not not oh, so rare that yeah. the single species be named after palmate leaves? I guess that's true. Well, Casey, as we do every week, let's imagine that you and I are walking through, and I'd like to say that we are walking through the Japanese gardens here in Portland, Oregon. Oh. Where I know there are many of these trees. True. And we come across some Japanese maples. And we are stunned because they're beautiful. Stunned. Casey, let's talk about what they look like. Let's talk about leaf, bark, stem, uh, morphology. I love when you ask me these questions. Margin. Makes me so happy. (laughs) The Japanese maple is a maple tree. As we've discussed before, maples in the genus Acer, they have oppositely arranged leaves that come out. So if their leaves and their buds are opposite, then their twigs and all their branches will have at least begun opposite, whether or not one died or, or moved on or something mm. like that. Um, but the, what is so classic about these is that they have these little tiny leaves. Like, they're not big leaves. They're maybe the size of like, uh, well, some of them are like, I don't know, maybe two inches around, like okay. maybe three. They're really not big, but what they're famous for is having these five to seven lobes that come out, and they kind of, um, they kind of are a little fatter at the base, these lobes, and then they like skinny down to what's called an acuminate tip, which means their tip is just pointed. Yeah, and it has a, you know, it just kind of comes down and is very, very not sharp. It looks sharp, but it's just not sharp. It's the best way I can describe it. They look tough and scary, and they're just not tough and scary. They have serrated margins on each one of these five to seven lobes, mm. and usually those the the sinuses, which are the the insides, the space in between the lobes, those are generally really deep. So they have like really long, fingery looking looking lobes. The basically. sinuses. Yeah, that's the this space an, in between. Okay, this is a new one for me. I like oh, it that. is. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I always make a joke when I'm talking about tree ID stuff, where science has to name the things in between the things that they name. Right. So the Japanese maple leaves have deep sinuses for the most part. Yeah, and on top of that, because these trees have been in cultivation for so long there are now other varieties that are even like deeper lobed like they're called lace leaf leaf maples and they they're like it goes all the way down like almost to the stem so it looks almost like you have these individual leaflets along these lobes it's not quite the case but they're just they look lacy like it's the perfect name for something because it fits the definition perfectly. They start to look a little compound. Yeah, they start to do that. And then the the serrated margins along each one of those, they mm-hmm. get really deep as well. So you get these really like beautifully, classically 
laced leaf maples, that's the one that you're going to see at the Japanese garden. I've seen these. Yeah. For sure. I love those leaves. They're so gorgeous, aren't they? They almost remind me of like, if like a cypress uh, needles were like oh, in leaf form. I see. Yeah, if they just had like a, a a translation into leaf. All right. So the leaves sound fantastic. They look fantastic. Beautiful leaves. Super gorgeous. They turn usually a really dark, like orange uh, red in the color or in the the fall time. Yeah. Um, but the thing about these trees is that they are. Also, they they're kind of like a snake barky kind of kind of tree. They don't get very big, mm. maybe thirty or forty feet tall. I mean, forty feet would be gargantuan for these trees. Wow, they stay really small, and they usually grow kind of multi-stemmed and outward. So you're never going to see, rarely at least, one single stem that yeah. comes up and then bushy top. It's going to be like one stem splits into two, splits into five, and then kind of just comes out in these low line. Uh, shrubby looking things yeah it's a bit like a it reminds me i think since you said snakes it looks like snakes like almost like yeah. a medusa head like most definitely coming out of one point just like all these like slithering branches that kind of grow and out and they, they never go. touch each other just kind of always going away yeah. it's a perfect look and the bark adds to it because the bark on the tree usually has that same like striations going up the side so mm. it's it's individual spots where the bark is kind of splitting as you know the inside is expanding out yeah but at the same time it doesn't get like big deep furrows on it it just slowly kind of stays flat but has these ridges that are very shallow but you can see very clearly the differences in the color interesting and there's even some species of maple called snake bark maples that do that specifically and look so gorgeous one i think it's acer pennsylvanicum from the eastern united states mm. it does this and it just is so they're just so cool the bark is so top-notch. Sounds great. So, other thing to note is they had these little Samaras, those little maple keys are what they're called, the little helicopters. Oh, yeah. They got them. Sweet. Yep, they still do, because, um, of course, every maple does. This is a classic maple definition or defining trait. Yeah, if you're trying to ID a tree and it has these. Exactly. And if you uh, you find the Japanese maple, you find the big leaf maple, you find the Norway maple, you find the Acer Pennsylvanicum, then mm. you also find, say, the... Acer Nagundo, that's the box elder. Okay. Those are five or six different species, and each one of those will have leaves that look completely different. Some will be huge, some will be small, some will be pinnate, some will have no lobes at all, some will not even look, they'll look like normal, simple leaves with maybe even some stri- or, uh, serrations around the edge. But each one of those uh-huh. will have the same kind of fruit. It'll cool. have variations as well, but you'll still see two seeds connected with a stem in the middle and then two wings coming off. And those are called winged Samaras. I love those. They're so great. Uh, but the the fun thing about these trees, though, is that there are, I think, three or four hundred different cultivars, Alex. Wow. So many. As a participant in Completely Arbitrary, I know that Japanese uh, horticulture mm-hmm. is just a huge universe of cool stuff. It's insane. Uh, gardening, big time. Yep. Uh, and then what was the uh, the Japanese? Um... Uh, bonsai. Bonsai no. trees. Well, yes, that is that is also a thing. But the, oh. what was the other Japanese tree we did on our world tour? Oh, that was the cherry tree. The Japanese cher- cherry. Yes. Huge in the in the cultivarization yeah, world. It totally is. And it's the same kind of thing where they were just people who had these trees, found them, and then just crossbred them and, and slowly but surely just took their time to find the most beautiful, specifically like poetic trees yeah. and just bred those out. But the point is, um, if you find a Japanese maple, you could find one that's growing kind of normally upright, kind of like the one that's out here, um, which I think is probably about 25 feet tall maybe yeah. outside your house. Sounds right. It's that big. However, you'll find some that have the normal green leaves because if you're walking around Japan, most of these trees just have normal green leaves. Yeah. They're they're kind of a darker shade of green, a little bit lighter underneath. Nothing fancy. I think that's how they look best. You personally. do? Yeah. Really? Okay. I don't love the the orange or the purple yeah. red leaves. I was going to say, because there is, for those of you who may not be familiar, there's a hundred different varieties that have the really dark red or really dark purple, like almost maroon purple. Yeah. They're, I think those are really beautiful. I have to say, I really like those. I would call that color like maybe like Merlot. Ooh, yes, definitely. It's like a wine red. Yeah, I like that. That's a, that's a perfect description. Yeah. Well, so all those trees, uh, or they have cultivars that have the really 
deeply incised and um, lace leafed in every shade of purple and red and green that you can imagine. Mm. Then they have them all with the normal leaves, and then they have ones that grow up. Then they have ones that grow directly up. Then they have ones that grow really slowly outwards yeah. and kind of spider out. Those are the ones that everyone kind of is super stunned by. They look like um, it's a Muppet. I can't remember the, the I, I can't remember the name of the Muppet. Oh. But there's some Muppet or maybe it's like Cousin It from uh, the Adams, Adams family. family. Something like this. But there's just like this big pillowy blob of foliage. And if you let that just grow and you slowly prune it and you like take your time, that thing will just keep growing and cooking for, you know, hundred years or more. Yeah. And then you have this big gigantic globe of just this really curvy, like sinuous bark and or sinuous tree that's growing out that is not straight. Like there's not a single straight branch on it. Mm. Everything is super curly and wavy and all kind of moving away from each other. It's super beautiful, especially if you get underneath one of those yes. and like look up. It's like, what? It's crazy. Well, let's see. The last thing to note about these trees is that they um, they generally are always going to be um, like small trees that really like to be not in the center of attention. Uh-huh. This is something, though, that people really want them to be. There's they they have the the looks of a Hollywood movie star. They do, and especially if you have a, a like artist or someone who really understands how to prune them and and form them. Yeah. Man, like the now let's go back to the Portland Japanese Garden. Which okay. if you have not gone, people, please go do that. It is noted as one of the best outside of Japan by a like famous Japanese artist uh, or um, gardener many years ago. Wow, solid place. However, the thing about it is there's one like famous, you can just Google it. You're like a Japanese maple or Japanese, Portland Japanese garden maple. And it's there. It's like on the front of every catalog in the city or like, yeah. a, you know, a so many postcards yeah. from Portland. Have exactly. This on and it's usually in fall and it's like this gorgeous orange red, but that tree has been meticulously taken care mm. of and they prune out a lot of the stuff to keep it really open because they're like, no, the bark and the texture and, and the, the way it's growing is a part of the aesthetics of the tree. So they actually prune it and thin it so you can see through the canopy and actually see all these twists and turns of the stems and the twigs and the, the branches and everything. Not very good for the tree, but yeah, whatever. It's beautiful. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's, like, it's like wearing... Uh, like wearing something that's so uncomfortable but you look so good in it right it's not it's not always the best speaking of uh hollywood actors yeah there you go Mm -hmm. this is the movie star yeah but yeah it's a shade tolerant small understory tree that has been put out into the limelight alex and casey we're going to talk more about stories oh after the break we'll be right back with more completely arbitrary Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome back to... Com- Jesus Christ. <laughs> anyway, Alex, let's just keep going from there. <laughs> I pumped my... Uh... Hey, welcome back to Completely uh, Arbitrary. Oh, don't edit anything about what just happened. All and if right. you do, you have to edit this out now, too. I give you my promise. Yes! <laughs> uh, today we're talking Japanese maple acer... Casey? Paul made him. <laughs> it's like a it's like a wrestler. Yeah, exactly. Hey, Sir Paul made Yeah. This yeah, is I've the hackiest yeah. thing we've ever come up with. <laughs> Sorry. Well, now we're gonna have to name the show after it. <laughs> Damn it. Uh Acer Paul Madum, the Japanese maple. Casey That's the one. Right before break, you were talking about 
understory, overstory. Mm-hmm, sure was. Let's get into the meat of this episode. Let's really talk about this. Now, this is something that I think everyone knows and everyone sees. Alex, are you okay? Yeah. What happened? You know, like when you, when you like roll on your keys or something. Okay, yeah. That just happened to me, but like it felt like a shin splint, but oh. like in my in my forearm. You get, you're beating yourself up over there. Are you all right? I'm a little tender today. Gosh. I'm kind of sick, and so my body is like, just every little thing hurts. I'm so, so sorry. So that probably technically, like chemically didn't hurt that bad. Oh, I see. But it just felt terrible. Mm, I really appreciate your your use of the term chemically hurt. <laughs> it's like, you know, like, no, that hurt more... In my psychologically, psycho- yeah, yes. okay, thank you. <laughs> I'm gonna start trying to make those definitions. Honestly, Yikes. I'm fine, but psychologically, I'm crying. Yes, <laughs> that was, that was awful. all right. Sorry to interrupt with my, anyway, with my no. grimace. What are you Jeez. talking about? We are here to support you. Oh. And make Is that sure what's you're happening? Okay. That's the only reason for this podcast. Oh, my God. Uh, we're talking about stories, Alex. Yeah. Now, the story that we're going to tell today Oh, has- let me guess. The oh. Lord of the Rings. We're going to talk about the Lord of the Rings. We are talking about the kinds of stories that are only written in the forest by the trees. Right, beautiful. The upper, the under, the others, all the kinds of stories that exist. So you recall when we were talking about, um, uh, what tree? You know what? Actually, most of our trees have been overstory trees. Yeah. Like, they're the big ones that you see, you know? You walk into a Pacific Northwest forest, you look up, and you're like, well, there's a big green canopy above me. Like, there's a whole thing that's a big douglas fir it's a big hemlock it's a big ponderosa pine it's something like that right yeah i can think of a couple understory trees we've covered the hawthorn would be considered an yes, understory there you tree. Go. the hawthorn and then the um, sugar maple is the, that an understory no that's a classically big story okay. tree yeah that one takes over it makes entire forests got it um but you're right we also did um a, the japanese cherry it's kind of an understory tree but yeah. it's, it's another one that is kind of on the side because it's not very shade tolerant right and that's the big trick that we're going to be talking about okay is that there are a bunch of trees that once you get enough like canopy space a whole tree forest grows up you have this big gigantic forest as a couple of those bits die or maybe branches break off you start getting some light that's coming through that's when all of a sudden you have this whole understory this whole like underground i can't say underground because it means maybe a literal thing here underground in a cultural sense Okay. You know, a whole scene is happening down there. Yeah. So you get this whole other like like once the big trees are out of the way, out of earshot, you get this understory canopy that starts growing up and they're like, Hey, there's some light over here, man. You want some of this? This is the counterculture of the forest. Exactly what this is. Yes. And so that's that is the uh the niche that the Japanese maple fits in its native habitat. Okay. Now they have forests over there that are very similar to the Pacific Northwestern forest. Mm. Although they have a completely different um uh cadre of trees and like historic trees that have come in and like you know messed with their um their forest uh dynamics i guess sure but they still have like the same kind of um pines and upper story things they have all sorts of maples like they're the the cast of characters in japan is really similar to the cast of characters that you'd see across the whole temperate northern uh area of the world so through russia and europe and uh China and the United States, all those like temperate deciduous forest trees. Mm -hmm. But then they also have these like tall peaks mixed with uh, a lot of different conifer kinds of trees. So there's lots of spruces. There's lots of, um, I think, I I think they actually might have a species of Douglas fir. Wow. Which is weird because it's not really. A species of Douglas fir? Yeah, like a species of things that would be considered a pseudo suga. It doesn't feel right calling it a Douglas fir. Oh, okay. Yeah? Well, anyway, we'll look that up later. Mm-hmm. Um, but the they, and just like every other forest, there are certain trees that take up that niche of growing in the understory. And those trees are a little bit more shade tolerant. And that's right. kind of the weird thing that we're kind of hitting on today, um, which makes it interesting when we are talking about the, um, the amount of 
energy that a tree can make, you know, per leaf, per the size of the canopy. So when you are dealing with the understory trees, and these could be really big trees, or they could be big trees in the making that are just slowly making their way up under the understory or through the understory. So it can graduate from understory to overstory. Exactly. I'm thinking the European beech, classic example. Some oak trees over in the eastern United States do this. Um, The Over here, the western hemlock and the Mm. noble fir, the western red cedar. These trees also do this. They'll just chill in the understory for as long as it takes. As long as they're just getting every now and then some ambient light that pops in. Every now and then they get a little bit, maybe a sunbeam here, sunbeam there for a couple hours a day. They will just sit there and cook. Do easy. Those trees that will graduate and become the overstory trees... They got stars in their eyes. They're looking to. They're looking to go like take the place of some giant when it falls. Right. Not the Japanese maple. Hmm. The Japanese maple has no aspirations to become a canopy dominant tree by any means. I love that. It is sufficient to live and just suck off the little beams that come through the canopy. Just content with its place in life. It really is, and it does such a good job. What we're really talking about here is this group of plants. If you're over here in the Great Pacific Northwest, you would find the vine maple taking that same that same uh, little niche um the hawthorn as you noted a um some of the horn beams in the eastern united states as well as in europe the hop horn beam these aren't a hundred percent the same because they don't they're not like really really shade in or shade tolerant mm-hmm. which means of course i should say this shade tolerant. Yeah, i was gonna i was gonna introduce a uh an idea or a uh, what should, what should we call this uh, terminologies jam. Yeah, they, yeah. Thank you. Sometimes I forget and I just just go off on jargon. Shade intolerant versus shade tolerant is just a means of describing: um, is a tree able to grow in full sun conditions or part sun conditions or shady conditions? Right. And that's that's really it. And it comes with different traits. So oak trees, um, especially in the eastern United States, super shade tolerant. They can just sit there in the understory and basically make enough energy to live over the long term with a not intense amount of light touching them. Right. Versus a Douglas fir or a shore pine or a loblolly pine, they have to have bright light all the time. If they start getting shaded out, they just go kaput. They just, they can't make it. Okay. And you can see these, these dynamics happening. Again, there's two different kind of levels. There's that the understory, the under canopy trees that are slowly over time becoming the late successional trees. And I know we've talked about this on a couple episodes or at least on one of the two of the Patreons, mm-hmm. the idea of forest succession. Right. We have that first tree, that first grouping of trees, the alders, the Douglas firs um, over in the eastern United States. It's mostly pines and different conifers. And then as time happens, older trees die or fall over, or they just get overtaken by these shade tolerant species that grow in the wings and they just kind of chill there for a while. They grow up, then they take over and the entire cast of characters in a forest completely changes over and now you have a whole different grouping. Right. A lot of times over here, that would be the the uh, western hemlock or the western red cedar. Mm. Two classic shade tolerant species that just cook. Whereas the vine maple is our perfect example, as I said, just like the Japanese maple, they'll just grow out. Yeah. And the reason I really think these trees are cool for this reason only is that A, seems so unpretentious, doesn't it, Alex? The Japanese maple? Yeah. Yeah. They they are, it's so ironic because they get such like a, a high pedestal of like the most gorgeous tree in the world. Like this is great, gorgeous Japanese maple and they're super beautiful and they have all this history and culture kind of almost literally bred into them because of, you know, how it is. Yeah. But then at the same time, if you go find the normal ones, they're just, they're trees that they're not asking for a lot. They're just going to slowly grow. And what I think is so cool is that if you were watching me on film right now, you see my arms like moving out kind of like snakes Mm -hmm. because they don't, 
tend to grow big and create these like perfect globe areas. So inefficient if the sun is getting blocked by gigantic stems or over there 20 feet, that's where the light's most intense right. or over here. So you can see them just put up this really long snaky branch that just comes out and then has like a little plate of leaves right yes. here and a little plate of leaves over here. And if you catch it at the right time, you can see that they are growing leaves in the only places where light's coming through the canopy. Mm. And then everywhere else on the tree, there's nothing. There's just this long, snaking little branch that comes out. Bloop. There's the light. I'm just going to put my hand out here, just soak it in. I love that. It's such like it's such like unpretentious, simple design. Yeah, right? You know? It's it, like, I'm just going to like, I, I see light over there. I'm just going to put a branch there. Classic. Get yeah. some light. And that is phototropism at its finest. That's right. Yeah. So same thing as the drunken sp- uh, spruces and pines up yeah. in, uh, I guess it's drunken pine. Was it? No, it was spruce. It was the spruce. spruce yeah. The drunken spruces Black do spruce. Th- yes. They will fall over and then grow straight up. Mm-hmm. But that's because they're growing straight up towards the light, famously shade intolerant. So they're not going to grow sideways and kind of sinewy, muscly arms out to try and catch every little spot of light that's coming out. Yes, phototropism, of course. Trees are phototropic, meaning mm-hmm. that they grow always toward the sun. Yes, most of the time, at least. I think always is a fine a fine term. Okay, I'm trying to say, I'm always so hesitant about saying uh, always. Yeah, it always it just scares me, Alex. It always scares you? Uh, <gasps> Casey. I need to go. I, that was such a meta fear. It's a real monster in the closet moment. Sure is. Whatever the fuck that means. <laughs> well, so the thing uh, the thing <laughs> that I love about these trees also is their eco- economical, not economical, their ecological mm. role in this area. So everyone, of course, like I said earlier, always thinks of the big trees, like the big giants that are out there. That's the forest. It's like, well, no, that's just the, that's just the upper story. Right. As you go down, you have this interesting thing where the birds, like you come to the Great Pacific Northwest, you go out into our forest, you're like, wow, it's a, it's a temperate rainforest. You walk out there, it's silent. There's nothing there. And there's nothing there because most of the biomass in terms of the amount of things that live here is all within the trees. So it's the most biomass of any place in the entire world, the Pacific Northwest. Hmm. So, all good and well, it's all inside the trees, literally, physically, wood, right? Yeah. So, when you have animals that are trying to live and trying to, you know, find food and do things, where are they going to live? They're either going to live way up high in the canopy of those trees, like, you know, the great spotted owl, or the tree vole, the uh, flying squirrels, these kinds of things. There's some salamanders. Um, Other birds that are eating maybe some of the things that live up on these trees. That's about it. As soon as you go down to those gigantic big stems, there's just not a whole lot of, of, of stuff there. I mean, it's just bark and dead branches. Huh. Now, the dead branches and that bark, it has lots of insects in it, it has lots of things going on, so it's a good place to find forage. But if you are a bird who's trying to actually get some, some really good nourishment, the vast majority is way down where that sub shr- or the shrub, I almost said sub shrub layer, Oof. But I feel like that's too many. I can't do that. I go for it. Remember yeah. insects that yeah. sensitive to sense? <laughs> I do. Yeah, you're right. Well, it's basically where you get that understory, that understory with um, the medium-sized trees, then the big shrubs, then the little shrubs, then the herbs and the flowers, and then the, all the detritus and the things growing on the ground. Yeah. That's where you get most of the stuff. That's where all of your um, your deer and your big sort of megafauna are. They're not up in the trees. You don't have like, you know, I don't know. I was thinking like j- the uh, pterodactyls. And I was like, nah, we don't, we just don't have really pterodactyls anymore. So I had to try and think of a better, a better big animal that lives up in the canopy. Mm. And there's only in, actually in Japan, there's like some, uh, monkey species that may do that. Eagles. That's it. But eagles aren't eating. They're just living up there. They're not eating things in there. Maybe the Cooper's hawk. They might do it. I see. But, you're talking, you're talking about things to be found to eat yes, or in just, the overstory. No, no, no. Not that we would eat, but just things that no, we would No, I know. The okay, animal, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Fauna. Yeah, fauna. All you get, Alex, is or the, the majority of the species of, of 
animals and things that live are in that understory section. Yeah. In that like bottom 30 feet. Then there's a big gap. Then there's a bunch of stuff that's further up. That's interesting to me, the, that sort of dead zone. Yeah. Well, and it's only dead. I mean, I, I should be more specific. It's not necessarily dead everywhere. Like there's different species of trees that grow in different ways. So over here, there is a significant zone of, of I don't want to say dead, but there's a dip in the number if you're counting and graphing it, mm. where you have different, entire different um I want to say colonies, but that's not the right term. Just different populations that live down here. Very few things that live up in this area and forage up there. Probably forage. Chickadees, great foragers. They're everywhere. Mm. But then up in the canopy, you have a whole different group, and it's different entirely than what's down here, and they're doing different things. Right. You can see that zone, too. When you're, oh, yeah. Like in, the, in Oregon forests, there's just like this, this sort of bare strip of like gray-brown Yeah. where all of the... Uh, the shade intolerant pines have just like knocked off their branches because yeah, exactly. they can't they can't survive under the top mm-hmm. foliage. Yeah, and then all that goes away. The Douglas firs do the same thing. And yeah. now, I, I, again, I don't want to say, and I don't want to lead you to believe that it's a complete dead zone because there's certainly things that live there and forage there. But the as you go further down, I mean, that's where you get all of your mice. That's where you get the majority of the mammal species that fly around except for bats. And then you, or I shouldn't have say fly, just walk around. Mm. Um, but then that's where you get all of your insects. Most of the insects are going to be hanging out down there. Um, but so this understory canopy is actually a super important place for birds, like even to make their nests where maybe they're foraging up in the top. Maybe they're foraging in the ground. They don't want to put their nest on the ground and they don't want to have it on those big exposed branches up there. So this shrub layer, this small understory layer, it provides a lot of cover. It provides a lot of food because that's where new insects are hanging out. Interesting. Yeah, so you get this whole different group, and the thing that I am so stoked about with this tree and other trees is that it's also what you see, you as a person. So you're walking through a forest. Yeah, man. You are only maybe five to ten feet tall. I know there's some big, tall people out there, Hmm. but generally, we're only going to be looking at things in that bottom 20 feet. Everything else, we have to like crane our necks and look up and really see it. Yes. So when you're walking around, a lot of people are like, oh yeah, there's a bunch of maples out there. It's like, no, there's no maples. Those are all Douglas firs. You're just seeing the maples because they're the things at your eye level, maybe. this is, I've, I've told you this before, I think, when we were maybe out walking, looking at uh-huh. trees. Uh, something we do often. Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? <laughs> um, I love a tree that you can just see the whole thing. Yeah, there you go. I love a tree that you can just like, I I can visualize the whole thing because it's like 20, 30 feet tall. Mm -hmm. It's right there. I don't, I don't, I don't get a lot out of like walking through a forest and looking up and seeing these big skewed perspective, you know, like when you're looking at like a, you know, a 250 foot Douglas fir or whatever, Mm -hmm. like it doesn't even look like anything. I gotcha. It just looks like a giant pole going into the air. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love a tree that like, oh, from, from root to the very top leaf, I can Uh see what this thing looks like. There you go. That's why I love the Japanese maple so much. And Casey. Alex. With that. I can't believe you went into it so smoothly. Let's. You caught me off guard. Let's give our rating of the Japanese maple. Uh, each episode we give the tree in question a rating of zero to 10 golden cones of honor. Casey, as our resident expert, we will begin with you. All right. Well, as you know, I have I have love for this tree. Mm-hmm. I also have hate for it because I hate that people like it so much. Is that ironic? Does that um, does that put me into a category of th- hate for myself? I think it's a little obnoxious. Yeah. All like right. you're like that's a little bit like, oh, I only like that band because nobody else listens to them. Oh yeah, okay. But I, then once they get popular, you're like, fuck that band. Mm, Even though I, the band did nothing I wrong. See. Yeah. All right. I get you. I was also thinking it's like someone who's like, ugh, Subarus. Everyone has a Subaru and yeah. they have a Subaru. Right. Yet they still oh, just shame it because I they're see. like, well, yeah, I'm trying to buy a new one. It's like, no, you're not. Oh, because you are someone who likes Japanese maples. Yes. But you also think they're maybe a little overrated. I think they're a little overrated. Mm. And as one who's about to give a rating for them, I'm hoping not to fall into the same, wow. the same problem here. Okay. So here's where I'm at. So I love that they're an understory tree. I love seeing the trees that take that other route. They're like, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to just, I'm just going to chill like this and yeah. I'm going to take it easy. But yeah, so these trees are 
coveted, especially if you can find some really big old ones that have been taken care of. But on the other side, people plant them in the worst places, like in the planter strip. You know, you want a big tree that's doing something cool. And then all of a sudden, Alex, you just, they plant a dumb little Japanese maple. And the thing is just sitting there. You drive by and you're just like, what is, what's the matter with that tree? You can literally see it gasping for water mm. saying, help me. You're like, I can't, I can't do it. I don't even have to pee right now. I'm sorry. Wow. And I think they're overplanted. There are better trees. The, the, the snake bark maples, just a little bit of creativity, people. That's all I'm asking, Alex. Mm. So. So here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. Okay. There's 10 golden cones of honor that I can give to this tree, right? Yeah. Okay. So if you split that in half, uh, we kind of have figured out that the the top half is is worth more than the bottom half. Is that, sure. Does that feel like, or maybe it's like vice versa? Yeah. No. It's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a like rotten a, tomatoes. Yeah. It's sort a little log rhythmic, isn't it? Yeah. Like no one's ever going to be like mm, one golden cone of honor because it's an, it's an okay tree. It's like I guess you no, know, I maybe will. There's trees that we they're coming up. Okay. I think it's a beautiful tree. I love how it works, and I love a good taking care of one. So I want to give it four for that. I see what you're doing. For being right there. Gotcha. But then I'm going to go to the top half. So it gets four out of five bottom half cones of honor. An understory cone of honor. Exactly. Yeah. However, for the upper story cone of honor, it just is so annoying to see new ones be planted, and the cultivars of them are just so ridiculous now. Where They're just like, there's so many, and they do so many different things. I'm just like, you know what? Let's just get rid of the top... 75% of those, give them back to nature, let the genes go back into the world and do whatever they can do best. And let's just stick with the really good ones. And let's mm. just let's just keep those really nice. Minimize, Minimize. focus. I'm going to give that a 2.5 golden cones of honor for it being overplanted, being a little bit of a a little bit of a, a I don't know, it's it's, it's just it's Right. You know, I'm going to end it there. So I think it comes out to be a 6.5 Golden Cones of Honor. I'm going to give it another 0.2 because I know that as soon as I'm done, I'm going to regret it. So 6.7 Golden Cones of Honor for the Japanese Maple. There you have it. 6.7 Golden Cones of Honor for the Japanese Maple from dendrologist Casey Clapp. It feels low, but I'm, I'm, I'm okay with this. Casey... We're on the same page here. We are. Yeah. You loved it though because you can see the whole thing. I'm sorry. Let I'm me, preempting. Let me let me do my spiel. Yeah. Let me have it. I am also. I have been. I have been up late at night thinking about this rating system. Yeah. Lately, we've been giving everything seven plus. Whoa! Whoa! Hands whoa! Down. Whoa! Did you even? Were you even awake for the calorie pair? Oh, I'm sorry. Besides that, it was low. Low. I mean, look at low. last season. We were just we were we were crazy about all those trees. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, and it starts to get a little a little boring and repetitive and kind of uh kind of like what's the point? Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take a page out of restaurant reviewing. What you know, Michelin stars? Never heard of them. Okay, really? No, okay. I have. I'm sorry. I'm okay. Just, yeah. So here's what the the Michelin thing's about. Okay. You can have an amazing restaurant yeah. and have no Michelin stars. Okay. You can have an incredible restaurant and have one Michelin star. Out of how many? Four. Okay. So there are four possible Michelin stars, mm-hmm. right? So a four-star restaurant is like world top, world class, the 1%. Wow. However, if you have any Michelin stars at all, yeah, it is still you're still in like the top five percent. What? It's that exclusive? Yeah, it's a huge it's a huge deal to get a Michelin star. I had no idea. So it's an honor, period, to have a golden cone of honor. That's why they're called the golden cone of honor. All right, I think that. Oh my God, you're kidding me. <laughs> so you're saying you're you're saying. Appearing on this show, that automatically that <laughs> that gives the tree yes, the status that exactly. it needs. If you're a tree that we review on the show, we already think that you're special. Yeah, right. So if you give a two golden cone of honor to a tree on the show, that's still pretty good. This is I. This that's, is extreme for me. That's better than a tree that we don't review. So with that in mind, okay. Here's what I like about the Japanese maple. It is an underdog. It lives in the understory. It is content with its place in life. Okay. It has no aspirations. Mm. It knows where it grows. Well said. And it grows there very well. It doesn't grow big, but it grows extremely beautifully. Mm. It's a gorgeous tree. Mm-hmm. Its leaves are delicate, like origami. Mm. They're intricate and beautiful, beautifully designed. But they are, they are small. 
Okay. It's small and beautiful. Okay. And it knows where it's supposed to be and it stays there. I think that's so honorable. I th- I I agree. I really pr- I also appreciate the poetics that you used just then. I feel passionate right now. Yeah, you look passionate. You're you're floating. With all of this in mind. Okay. I give the Japanese maple a 6.5. A 6.5. But I think it's an extremely well-earned 6.5. Mm, okay. Yeah. I think I could just as easily give it a 5.0. I see. Okay. In fact, why don't I split the difference? I'm going to say a 5.75. Okay. All right. That's that's fair. 5.75 Golden Cones of Honor for the Japanese maple. 5.75. This is our first uh, this is our first 100ths rating. Well, to the Japanese maple, I say you know, well earned. Well earned. Casey, that was our review of the Japanese maple. It's time for our regular segment that Ooh, we do every week. What's this one? When tree news breaks, there's only one source the completely arbitrary boys turn to, and that is the fungal associated press. Oh, there we go. I love it. Here's how it works we uh-huh. have. Our fungal associates, the people who listen to the show, send us news articles to discuss uh, about trees and other related topics, the kind of stuff we talk about on our show. What? I'm looking at some of these. This is insane. Let's go down the list here. The first one is from Camilla Southall. So this article is called Tankers and Transit Vans Sculpted into Steel Forests. Of course, you can find these articles on our website, completelyarbitrary.com, under the show notes Mm -hmm. for this week's episode. Artist Dan Rawlings has transformed a petrol tanker from a functional vehicle carrying fossil fuels into a work of intricate industrial beauty with a message about the power of nature. So what it looks like is that Mr. Rawlings has kind of like carved into the steel of the side of this uh tanker and made like a really (laughs) intricate pattern of like a forest of trees these are so cool man yeah they're gorgeous i want one of those like there's a there's like a a a transit van like a a ford transit or something yes oh i love it i want to get the the mercedes what are the ones that uh, people drive around with these days Oh, like the, uh, a sprinter van? Yeah, I want to do that with a sprinter van and then just sick. live inside of it, but then be like, no, nah, sorry, I live in my van in the forest. Get all your shit stolen. <laughs> yeah, I probably will. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> uh, so base, uh, so the, the article says oh, here, my God. He, uh, he spent four months carving out the tank to leave only a steel skeleton of tree trunks, branches, and brambles, turning this once polluting vessel into a 3D forest sculpture. Oh, my God. And he says, there is definitely an environmental message. <laughs> yeah. uh, obviously. So for those of you who are trying to like get this figured out, basically imagine a, a gas, like a tank truck that usually would carry gas or petrochemicals. Mm-hmm. And then he takes a blowtorch and carves that tank into a tree lattice work that used to be a full tank. Yes. And he that's says incredible. It's, it's very labor intensive. I could imagine. But that's the bit I really enjoy. And if you scroll to the very bottom of this. I wish I was an artist. <laughs> there is a a like a, a sign, maybe like a parking sign that, yeah. he, that he has carved into the into the shape of a tree. That is so cool. And with a light shining on it, there's a shadow on the wall behind it that looks like a tree. It looks perfect. Like yeah. that looks perfect. It's gorgeous. This is so fascinating. Oh, I mean, I, everyone needs to go look at these. They're again, they're at, they're on the website, but what's so fascinating about it is a, the time it would take to inter, intricately into crit. You know what I'm trying to say? Intricately. Thank you. Like cut out with like an oxyacetylene torch or something like that. And just like carve these things out. There's an airplane. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. Well, that's one. Casey, our second article is from Andrea Duck. Hello. Meet the Appalachian apple hunter who rescued 1,000 lost varieties. Casey, we found your nemesis. I will burn this man's forest to the ground. (laughs) He's found nothing but trash that should have been left again as the Japanese maple varieties. Let's just, let's just give them, let's just give those genes back to nature. They were, they were crushed and dissolved and were submissive to all the dominant genes for a reason. 
Why do we need him back? We, For legal reasons, we mean this man no harm. No, that's true. <laughs> Tom Brown's retirement hobby is a godsend. Yeah. I, no one burned down his forest. <laughs> in the name was, of Casey Clapp. That was, specifically, that was specifically to be funny. They're going to name you in their note. <laughs> they will. Let's see what their manifesto. Uh-huh. Oh, God. Take a cell phone video in their right. car right before yeah. they do it. Yeah. <laughs> this is my hero. Tom Brown's retirement hobby is a godsend for chefs, conservationists, and cider here's what it says casey conservationist give me a break <laughs> uh as tom brown leads a pair of young aspiring homesteaders through his apple home apple orchard in clemens north carolina he gestures at clusters of maturing trees a retired chemical engineer the 79 year old lists varieties and good. pauses to tell occasional stories unfamiliar names such as black wine sap candy stripe royal lemon Raven Bald, Yellow Bellflower, and Night Dropper pair with tales that seem plucked from pomological lore. Pomological lore. Look at my, that. My favorite new word. Hey, it might be mine too. So, Casey, he says these apples belong to the foodways of my grandparents and great grandparents' generation. These were what? Uh,. Lost varieties. Yeah, I honestly, I'm so I'm reading, I'm reading through here as well, and I've heard about this before. In fact, I think I might have heard about this guy specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, so historically, like there were varieties of apples that would be grown for everything, just like any other variety of something. Um, Johnny Appleseed is the classic example of this because what is famous about apples specifically. Is that if you plant, uh, if you have an apple seed or an apple, you take the seeds from it. If you plant those seeds, they will not grow to be similar to their parents. Apple seeds are famously, famously variable in the traits that come up from the the new seeds, right? So if you are planting an apple tree, then you have no idea what that apple is going to look like in terms of the fruit. You don't know how it's going to grow. You don't know anything about it. It's a crapshoot every single time. Mm. So Johnny Appleseed famously would just throw a bunch of apple seeds out as he would like walk from where, like Pennsylvania over to like Indiana, Ohio or something like that. So he would just cruise by and just throw apple seeds out and then like create a little colony of apples and then pick out which ones work the best and then keep everyone going. Again, they would use them for booze back then. So what they did, what happened is that you had have apples that would not grow very well down the south and then you'd have apples that would just put out a bunch of random seeds a couple of those seeds would work really well in your region it's up high it's down low it's over here it's over there you know more rain less rain dry whatever it is so you'd get all these weird different varieties that would work and grow well but then they also started making apples that you could eat and then they named them all those funny names that you just said yeah so over time, some of those names were successful and sold really well regionally, and then they just got outcompeted, and for whatever reason, people didn't care about them, and now you only get the Red Delicious because those orchards were bigger and they sold for cheaper or whatever. Right. So this man is is sort of finding the, he's he's sort of re- rediscovering the world of lost apples that maybe weren't as popular yeah. back in the day. And he's, I don't know. A thousand varieties, Casey. That's insane. Maybe I can get into this. Maybe this... Maybe this is going to finally put me over the edge. Yeah. Glenn, look at this. Look at that adorable man. I know. I love that. He just looks like a sweetheart. You know, anyone who's that stoked about apples and can name all these different varieties just by looking, I got to give some credit to that. That's pretty cool. Our credit's to Tom Jones. Our third article is from longtime fungal associate, Sarah Wanamaker. Hi, Sarah. Whoa! Sarah sent us an article, Extinct Date Palms Grown from 2,000-Year-Old Seeds Found Near Jerusalem. (laughs) That's so cool. Seven date palm trees have been grown from 2,000-Year-Old Seeds that were found in the Judean Desert near Jerusalem. The seeds, the oldest ever germinated, Casey, were among hundreds discovered in caves and in an ancient palace built by King Herod. The Great in the first century BC. Isn't that the guy who, um, uh, I think he had something to do with Jesus. I think he wanted Jesus to die because they're like, he's the new king. And Jesus was like, nah. Or, I'm oh. sorry, Herod was like, nah, not on my watch. Yeah, he was involved in that whole debacle. <laughs> that, that whole debacle. Yeah. <laughs> The ancient seeds were prepared by soaking them in water, adding hormones that encourage germination and rooting, then planting them in soil in a quarantined area. Doesn't sound that hard. That's incredible. Oh, yeah. I mean, I do it all the time. 
That's they just they just soaked them in water and they're like, all right, they look they look decent they enough look to plant. Good. I bet you someone tried it. Everyone always does that. They're like, would you try one of the dates? Oh, these are dates. Like you 100%, eat hundred percent. I would eat one yeah. of these dates. That's that's yeah. Talk about aging after uh, being good after aging for a while. You know, if Tom mm. if Tom Brown's uh, collection is impressive yeah. of a hundred year old apples. The, these two thousand year old dates are yeah. fucking mind blowing. That's in that's pretty insane. I mean, imagine the dishes. So you could take these dates, like a really, yeah. like a uh, a really like a world renowned chef, mm-hmm. right? Could take these dates and create a dish that has flavors that have not been tasted for two thousand years. That's exactly right. That's the next thing they talk about is that like the Roman scribe Pliny the Elder, for example, wrote that their outstanding property is the unctuous. Juice, I think I'm reading that right. Unctuous juice, which mm. they exude in the extremely sweet sort of wine flavor, like that of honey. Yeah, I've That's... never thought that honey had a wine flavor. I should say that. Oh, okay, maybe maybe a different. Uh, yeah, well, honey is really uh, a honey is a big. Uh, a big player in Greek myth. Yes. And so yeah. they sort of drink it like wine. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Um, Maybe they let it get a little meaty. Yeah, I think it's meaty. And at the end of this article, it says, previously the world's oldest germinated seed was a 1,300-year-old Chinese lotus seed. Wow. Recovered from a dried lake bed in That's China. stunning. I just want to meet the people who are looking for these things. It's crazy. Yeah, right? I guess, I guess, honestly, you think they're looking at it, they just find it, and they're like, yeah. wonder what that tastes like. Probably. In 2012, researchers in Russia grew a flower from 30,000-year-old fruit tissue wow recovered I, from frozen sediment in siberia that's so cool yeah that kind of stuff's really really fun casey it's time for our completely archery q a god that was a great that was a great segment sorry i don't want to end it that was cool yeah that was awesome I should read more articles i need more time yeah well you're gonna have a lot more time in a couple months here that's true no spoilers, <laughs> no spoilers. unless gonna, you want to spoil something yeah i can do it now i'm gonna quit my job that's right. Yeah, I'm not going to work for the city of Portland anymore. I know, everyone, I need you to stay still. It seems insane. I love my job. I love doing what I'm doing, but it's a time for me to move on mm-hmm. and do a couple other things. I'll be happy to, to have a little bit more uh, time with you, not just not Aww. just as a friend, but as a, as a business partner. Yeah, be all of the above. So. Yeah. It's time for our completely arbitrary Q&A, Casey. This week's question is from Riley Stark a member of the Patreon Arboretum. Hello, Riley. Hi, Riley. Hi, Alex and Casey. Oh, hey. I have a question that the pod can maybe address in an upcoming episode. Much is known about trees, forestry, and arboriculture. Arboriculture? Never never heard of it. Uh, But not everything. As in all fields of scientific inquiry, there is always the possibility of new discoveries awaiting further research. Oh. What are some of the unknown concepts in the science of trees and their management? That's actually a really in- interesting question. Um, the reason that's so interesting is that the the science of like about trees, like um, I was, I've talked about code it, like how trees grow and die and things. Yeah, that's like fairly new. Like that started in like the sixties, seventies, maybe. Really? You know? wow. Yeah. So I don't know. That's that's a huge question because um, yes, there's plenty to be known, but we humans are very um, hubristic creatures. Where yeah. once we learn a certain amount, we're like, we know everything. There Good is enough. Yeah, that's not the case here. So let's see. Um, a perfect example. We don't know how um, the fungal associations work and everything. Mm. We're just now learning and being like, yes, this exists, but we don't know all the intricate things that come together. And you know, like how how a whole forest functions at a very specific level. We can just observe what happens when we destroy it or we plant it or we do something. We can see what it was, what it is now, but we don't really know exactly how all those things work. Oh, the dodo and um, the the fig wasp. Yeah. Those are a perfect example. We learned about that. For every one that we know, there's probably tens of millions that we don't know. Right. Um, in terms of like arboriculture, how many roots can you cut and still have a tree live? You know, how if a tree has decay in it, how much of the inside can be decayed until the tree is structurally unsound? You know, there's a bunch of different variables that come into this. And so we just don't know. You just have to kind of use your best, your best guessing for that. But gosh, man, that's a, that's a big question, Riley. It's, 
I would assume it's like we don't know what we don't know. Yeah, that's kind of it. And all you have to do is kind of like just think about all these things. I know there's a hundred things that we've talked about. We're like, we just don't know. Yeah. Um, why are the, why is this tree deciduous and not that tree? You know, why does why does this tree grow like this? Why is it what makes this tree so much better at doing this than other trees? You yeah. know? Why why is the um the tree of heaven so invasive like we can read and say well because it does this does this does this but because it does those things does not explain why it does those right things, you know so it's like yes i don't know is it just a strategy so we don't know um we can just observe what we've observed but we don't know the whys about anything and a lot of times we don't know the hows we just learned that trees can fight off different um or send signals and kind of fight off the the different things that um you know come to attack it so we're basically i would say the big thing that we don't know is how much damage we've caused and how to fix it and specifically, we don't know what was what was there before we came in and destroyed everything. Mm-hmm. Oh, here's a great example, Alex. All the indigenous knowledge that was lost oh. with um, not only the colonization of the world, essentially, but let's just focus on the United States or North America. Um, even before, like, actually people came and said, I'm going to kill you and take your land, disease came and just massacred entire, yeah. you know, populations. So, so if we had enough, uh, if, if we were lucky enough as a culture, meaning humanity, to have these, this, you know, these two meetings of the mind say, well, we're Western civilization, we think we know everything. It's like, well, we've been living here. We are this other civilization. We've been living here for this long. And then let's assume that we all got together and said, well, let's just make this work out. Then we could have talked to them and had like, oh, well, what is the um, the relationship between these things? And then we could have had someone who'd been dealing, working with intimately the, that relationship for 10,000 years. Yeah. So that's that's what we don't know. Like we don't we don't know the the force and the interactions of trees and plants and us and other things uh, to a degree that's you know beyond the thickness of a piece of paper laying on its side. Yeah. Anyway, I think that's yeah. It's not a very good answer. It feels like it's superficial and but there's just there's so many. You know. I think that works. Yeah. Like the, I think that the biggest the biggest answer there is like like most things we know a fraction of what of what there is to know. Yeah, right? And I like I could think of a thousand little examples of papers that I've read that are like, well, we 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 know how this thing reacts, but we don't know why it reacts that way. We don't know how to predict it. Thank you so much Riley for your question. If you have a question for Casey about trees, email us at arbitrarypod at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at arbitrarypod. That's A R B O R T R A R Y pod. You can join the Patreon to support us. Yes, you and can. And support the podcast and support tree education there you go you can join the arboretum for five bucks a month get two extra episodes a month about other related topics you can join the cone of the month club and get a unique die cut sticker of a cone illustration illustrated by an independent artist every month we love our independent artists yes we do yes we do as to ourselves exactly right well casey Alex, we did it again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Completely Arbitrary. We'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Completely Arbitrary is produced by Alex Croson and Casey Clapp. Our artwork is by Jillian Barthold, and our music is by Aves and the Mini Vandals. And you can support the podcast at patreon.com slash arbitrarypod. And find additional readings at completelyarbitrary.com. Thanks for listening.